0: Do you like Bible trivia? You may or may not like Bible trivia. I used to play the Bible trivia game. There's a game, Bible trivia. And uh, so I got a couple of Bible trivia questions to start you off this morning, see if you're awake. Um, here's a question. Who wrote the most words in the Bible? And then you're thinking, ah, oh, that's a trick question, isn't it? Because God wrote the words, right? He wrote them all. Well, yes, and that's a, in the sense of inspiration, that's true. But how about humanly speaking, who wrote the most of the Bible? Now, in the first service, there's a smaller room. People were feeling like calling it out. It was kind of cool. You're all a little shy this morning spread out. That's okay. It's not Paul. It's not Jeremiah. John. Moses, I heard it. Moses. And it's by far Moses. Like, second place isn't even... It's a very distant second. Very distant second. Uh, how about second place? Not Luke. That's close. That's third place. Uh, Luke wrote Acts and, and the gospel that bears his name. Actually, uh, most it's going to surprise you that it's Ezra. Or at least that's the uh, general consensus among Bible scholars uh, he's considered to be the author of First and Second Chronicles, as well as the book that bears his name. So, uh, and then fourth place, Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Uh, who, uh, which book of the Bible is the longest book? I figured you would say Psalms, but that's not correct. In fact, I don't even think Psalms is fifth place. The longest book of the Bible is Jeremiah. It has the most words. Uh, Isaiah has 10 more chapters. Psalms has 150 psalms, but they're short. A lot of them are anyway. Uh, second place is Genesis. Genesis is second place. the length of the Bible. Uh, and then, uh, so then it goes from there. But that's just some interesting facts. In both of those lists, Jeremiah is in there. We don't hear too much from Jeremiah. You may have a little magnet on your refrigerator that says, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Most famous ver- b- verse by far in the book. We are not going to be looking at that one today. But do you know anything else about Jeremiah other than that verse? It's one of those books of the Bible that's actually very beautifully written. It's confusing to a lot of people because the structure is hard to understand because he, uh, the flow of it sometimes doubles back on itself, historically speaking. And so it's, it's sometimes avoided for that reason. But there's so much beautiful stuff in here, and I want to highlight one of those verses for you this morning. Now, I have here a cold... Bottle of Red's purified Kroger water. I'm told that that comes directly from the drinking fountains across the river and the stadium. That actually tastes really good. I like this kind. Uh, Now, have you ever been to a desert? Anybody ever been to a desert? Uh, I was born out in Colorado, and people don't generally think of it this way, but Colorado is basically a desert. Um, and uh, except if you're in the mountains, it's a little different. Uh, but it's very dry there, and so anytime anybody goes out west and they know that I've, I, I, and they haven't been before, I say, make sure you take your sunscreen and make sure you take ChapStick because it gets super dry and your lips just get really chapped out there because you need the water. And so for people that live in those kinds of climates, This is treated more like liquid gold. Um, Sometimes in the news we'll see stuff about the the droughts out there and how the reservoirs are getting depleted, and we'll see what happens this year with all the extra snow they got, so they're really appreciating that. But uh, my favorite place uh, to go hiking that I've ever been is in Colorado. It's high up in the mountains near the Moffat Pass and you get uh, out there where the trains go through the Rocky Mountains. It's an engineering marvel. But you, you start hiking up, and there's a, a place you can get to called Crater Lake. And it's right up at the Continental Divide. And it's kind of a, a lake that's rimmed by the snowy mountains. And it, it's, it's just gorgeous. And so there's a waterfall, and it cascades down into the lake from the melting ice pack. The snowpack, and so after several hours of hiking in that dry climate, you get up there and you get, it, and it's so clear and crisp, you can just dip your water bottle in there and just drink right out of it. It's some, it's the best water I've ever had in my life. And doesn't that sound delicious? I think I'll just have some water now. <laughs> yeah, if I can do it without spilling. Uh, The Bible was written to people who lived in an arid climate. And so there's a lot of references to water in the Bible. And you have to think through the the lens of somebody who would consider water a precious resource, a little bit unlike our own situation. Sometimes water can be annoying here, but there it's very, very precious. And and so what I want to do uh, this morning is is, is take you to a verse in Jeremiah that talks about that, And, and Jay's alluded to it already. We've already read some scripture that relates to it. But if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah the prophet is known as the weeping prophet. And the reason for that, by the way, how would you like to be known as somebody who just weeps all the time? The reason for that is, as a young man, Jeremiah was called by God to be his mouthpiece and to bring a message of judgment, of impending judgment, not too dissimilar from Jonah, who was told to go to Nineveh and preach that God was going to destroy the city, Uh, but that was all a prophecy of three days. You know, in three days, God's going to destroy Nineveh. Well, uh, God did not tell Jeremiah... When the destruction that he was going to be predicting was going to take place. So, year would pass after year, and Jeremiah would be out there preaching, and nothing would happen. The judgment wouldn't come. And so, after a while, the people just started to dismiss him as that old crazy guy who, well, he wasn't old at the time, but you know, the, the message was old. Judgment's not coming. He's been saying that for years. And Jeremiah started to get very upset about this with God. And he would uh, even... And Jeremiah is one of those guys in the Bible that really, like like Job, just shares his feelings. And so we know more about Jeremiah as a person in the line of prophets than we know about any other prophet in the Bible. But Jeremiah was... um, he was upset with God for, for kind of putting him in the position of looking like he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's like, I, are you going to come do it or not? And, uh, and, 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 and so I, I wouldn't fault him. I, I was never a prophet. Um, I can't even predict who's going to win March Madness, let alone uh, what God's going to do. But that was supposed to be a joke and I missed it. <laughs> Darn. I need to get better at this. But the, uh, uh, the prophets could be forgiven in my mind for almost feeling vindicated when judgment would actually take place. I mean, you think about uh, Jonah again. He was mad when the judgment didn't take place. Uh, but I don't know. But Jeremiah was actually around for the fulfillment of the prophecy that he was foretelling for so long. He was in ministry for 40 years. Uh, God eventually did uh, bring Nebuchadnezzar in. They surrounded the city and they put it under siege and then uh, breached the walls, burned it with fire, carted off the people, the Babylon. Uh, because Jeremiah had preached that the people should just surrender because it was hopeless, uh, the, the Chaldeans found that out, and they were like, okay, you were, you were kind of on your our side on this. We'll give you the option. You can go to Babylon or you can stay here. He chose to stay in Judea and eventually went down to Egypt to be with exiles down in that region. But early on in his ministry, uh, we're going to see that the text that we have today is a little bit like a summary statement that a prosecutor would give in a courtroom, So in a courtroom, when they they lay out all their arguments, it can sometimes take quite a while. There are a lot of points that they want to make. And then they might say something like, in summary, here's what I want you to, you know, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. And they'd say that to the jury, and then they would uh, tell them a few things. So the verse that we have today might seem a little bit like that to us. Let's look at it together Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people, God is speaking here through Jeremiah, God's people. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let's just pause and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that as we come to listen to the text of Scripture, that you would remind us again that it is living, it is active, it is inspired, it is authoritative, it's not dead. And so as we sit and listen to it and we read it this morning, you have something As fresh today to say to us, as when Jeremiah said it and wrote it thousands of years ago. And so we pray that you would help us to receive it that way. The living God speaking through the living word to living people. Lord, I pray that as we even leave here today, that we would go with a sense that we have come and we have heard from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now what I'm going to do this morning is what I try to preach to our students all the time. Just simple, basic principles of Bible study. The first thing you you do when you go to a text is you observe. And you just look at the words and you say, all right, what what does it say here? What is the the context and and, uh, who's he writing to and all of that kind of stuff? Well, we already did some of the context, but what I want you to know is that first word there, for points backwards. It points back to the previous verse, which says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. And so God, I mean, speaking of, you know, O heavens, I imagine that there are, you know, the angels, perhaps, are the ones that he's addressing there. Uh, whoever's in heaven. And the, the, the heavens and maybe even all creation are to observe what God is observing and, and be shocked and horrified at what they see. What are they supposed to see? Two evils. That's why I said their summary statements. Israel had a list of things that they had done wrong and that were evil, but God is going to whittle it all down to these two things. What are they? Well, the first thing that we noticed this morning... Is that they have forsaken me, forsaken God, the fountain of living waters. But notice that he calls them my people. God is not writing to the Canaanites or writing about the Canaanites who were known for child sacrifice and idolatry and all kinds of wickedness. They had no knowledge of God whatsoever. And God is saying, look, oh creation, look, oh heavens, look at this horrible situation. My people are behaving in evil ways. My people have committed two evils. The first is that they have forsaken the fountain of living waters. Now, living waters is a common metaphor in the Bible. I love it. Uh, Isaiah uses it. John uses it. He, uh, he records Jesus saying, using it a couple of times, and we will come back to that. You remember Jesus at the, at the well where the woman was there, and he, he offers her living water. But for, for the moment, let's just consider how it, refreshing it is to find that satisfaction in a fountain. And to have that living water, these again were not ignorant people of god 's provision. They were people whom God had said to whom God had said, "I have loved you with an everlasting love." They were the chosen ones they were, they were the ones that He had performed many miracles. For, to rescue them out of Egypt and to bring them through a desert, giving them water from the rock. But they have forsaken God. Now, have you ever had a bottle of Poland Spring? This is not Poland Spring. Poland Spring water. They were recently sued for false advertising. because it's not from Poland, and it's not from a spring. So where they got the name, I have no idea. And who would even want water from Poland anyway? The, beautif- the beauty of the metaphor that, that we see here, from God being this living water, um, has led me to ask myself a question this week. Do I experience God as a fountain of living water? Now, at the beginning, I gave you a, a couple of pieces of trivia. How many, you know, you know who, who wrote the most words in the Bible, that kind of stuff? Does that really matter in your life? Not, not really. Now, you could be here this morning and you could say, oh, yeah, God's the fountain of living waters. I know that's true, and it fits for you in a category of truth not unlike the first trivia question that I asked. It doesn't impact your life at all, it's just something you know about. I'm not asking about that. I'm not asking if you know that God is a fountain of living water. I'm asking if you experience it. Do you find your refreshment for your soul in God? Do you find that he is the source of satisfaction in your life? Do all other things seem hollow in comparison to your relationship and your experience of God? Do you run to the scriptures for a drink of cold, clear water for your soul? Is that how you live your life? So I've been asking myself that question this week. It's been very humbling, honestly, to ask that question. If we can't say yes to that, there could be a couple of reasons for that. Perhaps there's the reason of ignorance. I mean, we've just never really thought of God that way, and we've never really been taught that. And so we kind of walk around in ignorance of it, and, 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 and we don't live that way f- for that reason. But it says here that they have forsaken me. That's a, a willful word. It's a word of intention, on-purposeness. I've just made up a word. But that's the idea. That they knew of God that way. That they were not unaware of his life giving properties. Yet, they decided to go a different direction. Have you ever rejected something? Or, as the word here has it, uh, forsaken it. I've forsaken an old iPhone for a new one. Uh, I've uh, traded in my old car for a, a better one. My shoes wear out. I throw them away and I get new ones. Some shirts I still have in my closet I should probably throw out and get replacements for. We do that though. That's common. That's just the cycle of, of things. Things wear out, uh, and we replace them. But what we don't do is intentionally replace really nice things with inferior things. We don't. Uh, let's say you go to the after uh, after church. I, I run a risk here in making. Your stomachs growl. But say you go after church to a nice deli, and you want a sandwich. And you go to the counter, and you can smell the, the food, the, the slices of meat. They're slicing right there in front of you. And they have all the toppings. And the bread is fresh baked out of the oven. And you say, I want the, you know, and no, no, I'm not talking about Subway. Because this." No, well, never mind. A nice deli. And you go there, and it, apologies to anyone that works at Subway. But, uh, and then you, you, they give you a sandwich. And then you take it and you put it back on the counter and say, you know, I'd rather not have this. In fact, um, do you mind if I go around back and uh, pick through your dumpster? First of all, they would think you're crazy, and they would probably call the cops. But why would they think you're crazy? Because nobody ever does that. And this is why God is so frustrated. And he calls it a horror. And he calls it uh, uh, something to be appalled about and shocked. Because here is God with all that he is. And they're trading him in for what? Now, I have a slide. Oh, excellent. Thank you, Daniel. And you see here on the... I don't know where that waterfall is, but it's really nice. I'd like to go there. Uh, but on the, on the uh, other side, the, on the right, you see one of two types of cisterns that you would have fit, found in Palestine during biblical times. Now, again, I told you it's an arid climate, so water is very precious. They have a rainy season. And they have a dry season. And during the rainy season, they want to try to capture as much water as they can, just like they do in modern days out west in the reservoirs. They don't use cisterns today, really. Uh, My grandfather actually had one in his uh, house up in the mountains there in in Colorado where he captured the rainwater from the gutters to go down into uh, big barrels Well, same concept. And so people would build these on their rooftops. So the square house or whatever, they just add extra wall space around. And then they would line it with like a, a limestone kind of mortar to kind of seal it off. And then the rain would come and it would capture it. And that's a cistern. And sometimes they would build them on the ground as well. But the other type of cistern was more the type that I don't have pictured up there. Really, that's kind of a hybrid uh, situation of the two types. But the other type is one where they would actually go in and and find solid rock, and they would, over time, just carve it out uh, with whatever they could, pickaxes. And can you imagine the amount of effort that would go into carving out of solid rock a hole big enough to catch water? like that. Hezekiah did that. There are famous cisterns underneath Jerusalem that people can actually go see today. And Jeremiah was actually alive to see that day. And so he would have known about those cisterns. But I, I, I think with no jackhammers, can you imagine doing that? And here we have people, it says that they have hewed or carved out these cisterns them, for themselves, broken cisterns ca- that cannot hold water. Remember, remember, these are God's people. They're called by His name. They knew. Like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters and restores my soul. They knew these words. Yeah, what did they do? I'll use my paraphrase. They looked at all God could offer them and said, Nah, don't want that. It's like they were saying, I'll build it with my own hands, thank you very much. I'm a self made individual. I'll take charge of the situation and create happiness on my own terms. Does that happen today? This is such a striking juxtaposition, these two ideas here. It makes you wonder, why would anyone do this? And we can kind of sit in judgment on them and say, oh, pff, look it. I mean, why would anyone? That's stupid. I would never do that. Why would they do it? Well, perhaps I can just guess. I wasn't there. I didn't ask them personally. I can only guess. But maybe they took for granted, over time, all that God had done for them. The stories of God's faithfulness and the kind of lost connection between God's faithfulness in the past and their present circumstances, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe they had gone through difficult times And interpreted those difficult times as God being distant, not caring, or maybe even mean. Instead of understanding what Paul says in Romans about God working through all our difficult circumstances to bring about good, maybe they missed that. Or maybe they just looked in jealousy at the other nations around them and said, wow, look at all the stuff they have. Maybe we should follow what they're doing. What strikes me as horrifying, personally, is how easily I can see these tendencies in myself and in others around me. It is not easy to follow God in the wealthiest country that's ever existed. Why is that? Because wealth makes us self-sufficient. We can get to the point where we feel like we can provide all our own resources. We can do all the things that we need to do. And whatever we can't do ourselves, we can hire somebody to do it for us. Now, I know Christian people that are people of material means that use those means for God's glory. And those people have my respect. Because it is so easy to allow materialism to drive all that we think about, and become—we don't need God because we can do it all ourselves. But in America, that's our—that's our shtick, isn't it? You know, we're going to be uh, fierce individualists. We are self-reliant. I don't need anyone else. So we make our work weeks long, our our appetites increase, our expectations grow, but our levels of satisfaction are nosediving, and Pastor Eric has mentioned that recently, uh, the rise of things like depression and anxiety and suicide, all skyrocketing right now, all at the same time that we have all this prosperity. Why would that be? Well, some, you know, we're going to blame social media, we're going to blame COVID, you know, we're going to uh, blame Joe, Chuck, and Camilla, all right, Uh, whatever, you know, it is that we want to scapegoat, Uh, could it be that none of those things are really the problem? Perhaps it is something like what we're reading here this morning and trying to find satisfaction, and trying to find water to quench our thirsty souls, we're going to the wrong source. The more we reject God as a culture, the more dry and empty and broken we're going to be. Now there's a second uh, haunting question that I've been asking myself this week. Is there anything in my life that can classify as a broken sister? Is there something that I'm putting my hopes in and my energy into and and what I want in return is satisfaction? Uh, Is it my house? Some people do that. It pour tons of effort into that. It can be a gym membership, you know, because we want to look a certain way. Or maybe it's our work, our achievements that we're striving for, the achievements of our kids or our grandkids. Clothing, accessories. we got to have accessories. That's really important. Um, boys got to have toys, right? Got to have a boat. You've got to have something to pull the boat with. You've got to have the big TV. And if you can put your arms out and you can reach the edges of your TV, your TV's not big enough. Right? These are the things that we look for. And why do we have to have all these things? Well, we think they're going to be enjoyable. That's one reason. And if you have a boat, God bless you. Take me out fishing next week. That'd be great. Uh, But... uh, if those things become the, the, uh, the means by which we try to achieve satisfaction and happiness, they're in the wrong place. They're in the place that is reserved for God, and it becomes an idol for us at that point. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, I took my truck in for an oil change, and they convinced me to get my transmission flushed. Well, I got it back. I drove home a little funny the next morning. I tried to drive it. It wouldn't go anywhere. So I had to have it towed back to the dealership. They investigated and discovered that they had not filled up the transmission with fluid, and therefore it had broken down. So they ruined my transmission. Uh, There are supply chain issues right now for transmissions, and so I hope yours stays going nice and smooth. Because if it's not, you're going to be in for a long haul. So, two months later, I get my truck back. And I was so happy to have this thing back. I don't know why, it's just a hunk of black metal. But I was so happy. And so, I was driving it all week, enjoying it. Um, one week to the day after I got it, the transmission went out again. <laughs> and, I was, and, that, and that was just this past Friday just a couple of days ago, and I was so upset about that, and I really tried to compose myself when I got on the phone with the dealership, and uh, so, you know, I say, hey, it's, and you know it's bad when they know who you are when you just say your name. <laughs> I took it back. I uh, walked in, and they're like, oh, hi, Mr. Walsh, and I was like, yep, you know who I am, and uh, and so I tried to, compo- you know, uh, I tried to, to do my best there, but on the way home, they, they lent me a, another vehicle, and on the way home, I was, I was trying to process, because I knew what I was going to be preaching on this, this, this morning. I was like, thank you, Lord, for giving me an illustration, and so I, I was thinking, why is this bothering me so much? They've, I have transportation. Um, I'm putting miles on somebody else's vehicle. Why is this bothering me so much? Could it be that 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 vehicle is a broken cistern for me? Could it be that something in my life is trying to jockey for the position of satisfaction, that only God, the source of living water, should be? I don't want that to be true of me, and I hope you don't want it to be true of you either. I want to finish up this morning by kind of shifting our, our focus from perhaps what it has been all, all, all along here, and which is good, uh, and that would be on how this is all affecting you personally. Um, because and, and we're supposed to try to ask ourselves these question, questions, these personal pronouns, you know, Lord, what do I need to change, and, and have all of this. But we have to be careful that in doing so, in asking those questions, we aren't doing them for the wrong reasons. Why do you want living water? I'm assuming you do, rather than a cracked, broken cistern. Why do you want that? Well, for the satisfaction of my soul, of course. Well, in the mind of Jesus, that's an incomplete response. And I want to show you why. Turn to John chapter 7. You have your Bible with you this morning. John chapter 7, verse 37, says this On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? There are two things that I notice here that I think are so powerful. Well, three, actually. The first is that it's an open invitation. Anybody can come. He's like, if anyone thirsts, come. I love that about Jesus. There isn't a person in here that that invitation doesn't apply to. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter where you are in your present, the invitation is always, always open. Come for the source of living water. I love that. And then secondly, it says, whoever believes in me. We can't emphasize the importance of this enough. That picture of the, the, the water there, that living water picture, Cannot be experienced by anyone who does not understand and believe the gospel. And so this morning I need to be very clear about what the gospel is. The gospel means simply good news. And it's an open invitation from Jesus for us to, to understand a few things, to believe a few things, and then to kind of act on it. We are all born incapable of finding satisfaction in our own. We're all by nature carving out cisterns trying desperately and in futility to find satisfaction for our souls. We cannot because of the sin problem. Sin creates a barrier between us and God that we cannot fix. And that's why God sent Jesus. Jesus came, standing up and saying things like he said in John 7, showing us a way to live that's different, one that really results in satisfaction that we're looking for. But in order to have that, the Bible tells us that Jesus started his ministry with a simple message. In Mark 1, verse 18, Jesus said... Uh, it says that he went and he started preaching a message. And the message included two words. Repent and believe. One of those words is here. Whoever believes in me. So Jesus is saying to us, to find satisfaction for your souls, you need to turn from your self-salvation project with all of your sin. Turn from that... Turn against it. Reject that and embrace the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf and the truth contained in that. God sent Jesus to do what you couldn't do. He came and died and paid the penalty for your sin and mine so that we might believe in him and then the result would be everlasting life. An access not just to, to, to heaven when we die but ultimate satisfaction for the remainder of our days here on earth. Jesus said in John 10.10 I have come that they might have life and that they might have it to the full. Right? That's in this present existence. And so If you have not come to a place in your life where you have uh, come to the feet of the cross, uh, metaphorically speaking, or the foot of the cross, and you have just cast your life down in front of, of, of the cross and say, Lord, I cannot save myself. Will you please, will you please forgive my sins? Will you please give me the grace that comes through Jesus' sacrifice. And will you save my soul? To people that come to that place in their life, a door swings open. And access to all that God has to offer us is made available. And it's beautiful. If you haven't done that, I encourage you today not to leave here. Before That might be why God has you here today to hear that simple little message. And I would love to talk with you down in front afterwards if that is the case. But there's one final thing I notice here, and that's why I was so intrigued by this. Jesus says, out of his heart, the inner parts of us will then flow rivers of living water. God does not just offer you living water for your sake. He offers it so that you will drink deeply of it, fill up, and overflow into the lives of other people. And so the question I want to leave you with today, in addition to the ones that I've already asked, Is this, are the people in my life experiencing living water as an overflow of my life? Or am I so dried up that I'm sucking the life out of everybody around me? Because God wants to, to be a, an agent of hydration. God wants you, I'm sorry, God wants you to be an agent of hydration for the thirsty souls around you. And is that true of you? You might be here this morning and you might think, well, that sounds great. I'd love to be that, but I I can't even make it through a day without, you know, getting hit with so many things. I, I, I can't catch up. I feel like uh, I, I feel very dry myself. How do I, how do I help others find living water if I, if, if I feel like a desert myself? That's a great question. And uh, my answer to that would be that the closer you, f- you stay to the fountain of living water yourself, through personal devotions, through prayer, through your own Bible study, the more fellowship with you, that you have with our Heavenly Father, the more your soul will be filled and the more that will overflow to others. So your proximity to God is going to make a huge difference. How do we get close to Jesus? Well, you can't be close to Jesus if you're harboring sin in your life, unconfessed, unforsaken. And you may know about something in your life like that. And and you'll never be a fountain for others if, if that's the case. And so maybe you need to do some confession and repentance. Get right with the Lord and then let him fill you. You can't be filled if you've got a broken relationship with the Lord. Another thing that I would say is that um, a litmus test is that uh, in the Psalms it always it, it talks frequently about an overflow of praise. If you find yourself uh, constantly kind of bubbling up with praise to God in your life, you kind of know that there's a level there of fullness and and that overflows. But if that's absent from your life, you may need to do some some thinking about. What's causing that? Uh, pray, Ask for it. Ask for it from God. Remember what the Scriptures tells us. Uh, it tells us that when, when we feel like we need things from the Lord, that we should come to Him and ask Him for them. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm feeling very dry. Would you help me? Help me find satisfaction. Not in other things but in you alone. And and lastly, I would say that there are so many distractions that we have in our lives that uh, we have ourselves to blame for. Uh, The amount of TV we watch, the amount of time we spend on our devices. uh, You know the the drill. There's, There's marginal time that we could collect and spend in time with our Savior, with our Lord, that can make a huge difference in these matters. So I hope this morning that you will leave thinking about whether you are dry or full, and whether that's overflowing to others or whether it's not. And I really would hope that you have not traded in the source of living water for broken cisterns. Heavenly Father, here we are this morning again in need of your grace in our lives. And I pray that as we leave today that you would send us out with a renewed desire and thirst for living water and not be satisfied with the muddy junk at the bottom of a cracked cistern. Are we thirsty? Are we needy? Remind us where the source is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pat Kinman's mm. going to come now and close our service with a song.